a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know if you're an experienced wrong thinker, maybe a first timer testing the waters. But you have found a place where you can count on commentary delivered, hopefully rationally, without the spittle flinging. And with an eye towards uh, giving you information to work with. You don't have to believe what I'm sharing with you, okay? So let's, let's, be, let's be perfectly upfront about this. Uh, in no way... Am I thinking that you should believe everything that I say or everything that I share? You don't have to, you don't even have to trust me. I'm just putting some information out here for your consideration. What you do with it is entirely up to you. Now, I do admit I'm trying to encourage people to think clearly and independently about the world around us. Things uh, being like they are and kind of a state of upheaval and instability. That's a really important quality. In fact, it's probably the highest duty that we have as citizens to think clearly and independently in times of crisis. Well, the show will give you some resources to be a wrong thinker, to question the narrative. And there's, there's a danger in this, in that uh, when people start to wake up and realize, you know what, I have been lied to, or I've been, I've been fed information that tries to shepherd me in a particular direction, but doesn't necessarily correspond with reality. That's when you start to appear crazy. Or at least uh, out of step with other people. And, and uh, you'll find there are people who will actively push to try to get you to go back to sleep. Come on, man, close your eyes. You're making me uncomfortable. That's very normal, even if it is uncomfortable for you to realize that uh, suddenly you're on the outside. You're not part of the in crowd anymore because you are seeing things from a different perspective. So this isn't about how much better we are than everybody else who hasn't yet woke up to that. We're all somewhere in that journey of fighting our way out of the swamp of misinformation. But I appreciate you being a part of this audience, and I hope that you'll find that what I have to share with you is is worthwhile. I have some great sponsors who make this program possible. Let me just acknowledge them. MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSL Ammo. Com, who, by the way, have some really cool swag if you want to check it out. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com and governyourincome.com. So I actually have some really great stuff today. I mean, some just cutting-edge commentaries to share with you. But I want to start with something that uh, is, is very close to my heart. My oldest friend in the world passed away this weekend. Now, when I say my oldest friend, I mean she was literally my oldest friend, 96 years old. Um, My dear friend Edna Neighbor uh, graduated from this life. And I just I want to share this experience with you just because here's here's my reasoning. So hopefully you're not going to get a chance to hear me, you know, break down and start blubbering. But we never realize the impact that we are going to have on the lives of people around us. You just don't know little things add up to uh, to really life-changing things and that's true for negative you know negative acts as well as for positive acts well in the case of the neighbor family it is possibly one of my fondest memories in fact i think it is i'll just come right out and say it my fondest memory of the time that i spent living in southern utah was the fact that i was adopted 
by Abraham and Edna Neighbor. I became an, an honorary son, and and I, I first met Abe July of 1997 when I was asked to to come and uh, speak at a Fourth of July flag raising. Now at the time I was doing a morning show and you know just uh, just kind of getting getting my feet under me in Southern Utah radio, but uh, Abe was was a very well studied, classically educated guy, super well read. And had a great love for liberty. And I guess he sensed or he, he saw something in me that there was likewise a little flame of, of liberty that was just beginning to take hold. And Abe, without imposing himself on me, became a mentor to me. He invited me to come and speak at the 4th of July flag raising, which was a great experience. And uh, then invited me to, to attend family events, their family reunions, family parties and so forth. And, and pretty soon, uh, my wife and, and our growing little brood of kids uh, became, you know, we, we became honorary members of, of the neighbor clan. And Edna was right there by his side, these two wonderful people with just outstanding kids. People who've lived in southern Utah will know that uh, this is a family that has, has had a very positive influence in whatever communities they, they've lived but uh, Abe was one of my dearest friends, one of my most faithful listeners on the radio. Very distinctive voice, you know. He would he would call in, and and uh, people people knew that was Abe, you know, calling in. He passed away back in two thousand three, and I will be forever grateful to his daughter in law Linda, um, who caught me coming out of work one day. We worked in the same building, and she told me, "Hey, Abe's had a stroke." You should probably you should probably go see him. And and I gathered from what she was saying, um, this this was probably he was he was getting close to the end. And I said, Oh man, I I am just so busy. I wonder if I could run and see him tomorrow. And she kind of caught my arm and said, It might be a good idea if you go sooner than later. So I took the hint and I went and I saw Abe and there he was at his home. Unfortunately the stroke rendered him unable to speak. And but but his eyes just lit up as soon as I walked in. Um, I sat and visited with him and um, held his hand, you know, told him goodbye. Um, not an easy thing to do. That's, that's, I mean, you know, if you've ever been in that situation, we all want to believe, oh, he's going to get better. This is all going to turn out just fine. But um, I had a chance to, to sit with him and visit, and about 5.30 the next morning, his daughter called me and said, you know, Daddy passed away. And I was so grateful that I had that chance to 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 share with him, or at least to tell him face-to-face, you have had an immense and positive impact on my life because he's the guy who got me started reading original sources, doing original research. And I don't mean to sound like I became an expert on liberty at that moment. It's an ongoing process and one that I'm still very much a part of. But it was looking at Abe's example. It was the kind of questions he asked as 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 a loving friend, not as a schoolmaster or a teacher that built that little flame in my heart that he clearly saw back in, you know, July of 1997 into a roaring furnace of love for freedom and a willingness to speak up and be a voice in its defense. And we've stayed in touch with uh, with his dear wife, Edna, all these years. I actually had the chance to travel to St. George in April and speak to a group there. And, uh, and on a whim, my wife and I decided that we would just uh, try to, to reach out to Edna and, and see if we could catch up with her. So we called her out of the blue. She had she was actually out to lunch with her brother, and 
But we were close enough that we said, you know what, let's just make the effort and, and see if we can, can find her. She was going to walk home. She was close enough to, to where, where she was living at the time she had walked to, to Ermita's to, to get something to eat. And we drove down the street, and there, there she was, <clears throat> walking with her, with her brother, and had the most wonderful visit with her. And I, I didn't have the sense that this is the last time you're going to see her, but it was just, it was so unexpected, and the timing just worked out so good. Looking back at it now, um, it's very hard for me not to, to feel a sense of, there was some kind of providential um, coincidence, if you will, or providential blessing at work there. That, uh, that gave me that chance to go and, and visit with her. And at 96, she's still just as, as sweet and fiery and just this, this wonderful person. Well, Edna went to her rest, and I'm, just, I'm taking this first segment of my show today to honor her, to honor her family, to honor her husband, Abe, who I still count as, as one of my dearest friends. I have a couple of uh, books that once belonged to him. This is one of the things Edna gave me, um, a couple of, of books of Abe's. And as I went to read these, something I noticed was Abe was a guy who would write in his books. And I know our mothers told us from an early age, you do not write in a book. I would beg to differ. I think one of the greatest things you can do, if you have a book that, that you absolutely resonate with, something that, that gives you meaning, not only read that book, but write. Write down questions that occur to you as you read certain passages. Underline things. Make comments. Because every time I open up one of those books, it's like my friend Abe is right there with me. So if you're looking for the secret to uh, immortality, I'm not saying that's it. But it's a pretty good way to, to keep your influence alive in the lives of people who will follow in your footsteps. All right. I got that out of my system. I'm, I just I want you to know. I love the neighbor family. I send my condolences. At the same time, I'm, I'm feeling this, this sense of sadness as well as joy that um, Abe and Edna are, are reunited. But more than anything, I share this with you just so that you understand. It's such a little thing. It's such a little thing to be kind to other people or to welcome them into your life. You never know the impact that you're going to have. And a very big part of who I am today and what I stand for today stems from that friendship and the influence of Abe and Edna Neighbor in my life. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's dive in here with both feet. I guess you don't dive with your feet. Let's jump in with both feet. Now let's dog paddle around in circles. Now, I uh, I want to jump into a topic here that is, this is getting my attention just because, I don't know, I, I had this impression that, hey, you know, the, the whole fear narrative and the whole idea that everybody must mask, everybody must isolate, everybody must vaccinate had kind of been dying down, or at least people were looking around them. <clears throat> they were trusting what their eyes and their ears were, were showing them and realizing that, okay, COVID is a real thing. We all know people who have either been immensely sickened or perhaps died because of this virus. 
But at the same time, it's not nearly the deadly bubonic plague threat that, uh, that we were told it was. And so I was finding myself getting caught up in the idea that, well, you know, maybe people are just going to go ahead and bring it back to normal because that's, you know, that's where things seem to be headed. Nope. Look around us right now. You will see governments all around the world literally placing law-abiding grown-ups under house arrest for not agreeing to get an injection. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to stir up, you know, anger here, but I think something's not right. You know, Austria and Germany right now, they're locking it down hard. Australia literally has built camps for the, the people who they deem to be a risk from COVID. And I, by camps, I don't mean, you know, summer camp where we go and we lose weight and sing songs around the campfire. I mean, like guarded facilities where you, if you want to leave, you have to get permission from someone, the armed someones who were guarding that camp. And if you leave without their permission, that means you've got to cross the barbed wire and run for your life. But they will come after you and they will put you back in the camp. Now, it could be me, but uh, how that's functionally any different from prison, you know, I, I just can't see it. Well, I came across an article here by Stacy Rudin. I have followed Stacy's writings now for some time, really find her to be a perceptive and, and rational voice. This is a piece that was penned for the Brownstone Institute. Brownstone.org. This is, this is one of my favorite resources for getting a good, solid take on what's going on without all the, the media gaslighting and without all the, the spin and partisanship that comes from many of the other uh, traditional mass media. The article's titled, First Comply, Then We'll Grant You Some Rights. Stacy Rudin says more and more people feel like something is off about our response to the COVID pandemic. This pandemic is claimed by political establishment prophets to be the first time in history that we need universal worldwide, and this part's in quotation marks, vaccination, to dissipate a respiratory pathogen. Now, the proffered vaccines do not provide sterilizing immunity. Rather, they lead to regular breakthrough infections. Yet we're directed to mix and match them as we like on a regular basis in order to, re- to eat in restaurants and attend events. Having recovered from the de- disease itself does not suffice to maintain your rights. The ability to prove that you're not susceptible to the pathogen due to inherent good health does not suffice. To maintain freedom of movement, you must submit to the vaccinations, or to the injections, rather. And Stacy Rudin says something is off. They want us to take these vaccines very, very badly. They want to build a QR tracking infrastructure on this safety premise very badly. And she says one must ask, did they ever have a legitimate basis to lead us to this point? Did they really believe they could save grandma with a lockdown? By picking apart the superficially flawed justification they gave to the terrified world population for first imposing universal house arrest, we can see... They did not. Both the World Health Organization and the Imperial College modeler, Neil Ferguson, called for lockdowns specifically based on China's Wuhan lockdown of January 2020. They admitted that lockdown was something no one previously believed would work. 
when Xi Jinping succeeded, that's in quotation marks, they abruptly reversed course 180 degrees, calling for the entire world to copy China. And she backs this up with a quote from Neil Ferguson. It's a communist one-party state, we said. We couldn't get away with it in Europe, we thought. And then Italy did it, and we realized we could. If China had not done it, the year would have been very different. Stacey Rudin says six weeks after the discovery of the first case, the World Health Organization, during a press conference, sold the world on lockdown by claiming that Wuhan's curve is flatter compared to other regions of China. Now, the data it used to make this case, a case that it knew would devastate world economies and any individual human who could not earn money by sitting in front of a computer screen, was presumably provided via the communist dictator. Here's the quote. So here's the outbreak that happened in the whole country on the bottom. Here's what the outbreak looked like outside of Hubei. These, here are the areas of Hubei outside of Wuhan. And then the last one is Wuhan. And you can see this is a much flatter curve than the others. And that's what happens when you have an aggressive action that changes the shape that you would expect from an infectious disease outbreak. This is extremely important for China, but it's extremely important for the rest of the world. The Chinese government and the Chinese people have used the non-pharmaceutical measures or the social measures to effectively change the course of the disease as evidenced by the epidemic curves. In the report, we have recommended this method to the international community. So I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, that's from the World Health Organization. Now, this superficially pleasing explanation, one easily accepted by a trusting, scared person, raises huge red flags on closer analysis. Stacy Rudin asks, first, how was the testing in the various regions conducted? Was it randomized throughout the population, or were only those who presented at clinics or hospitals tested? How many tests were conducted per capita? Was that number standard throughout the regions? How could we be sure asymptomatic cases were captured? And so forth. In short, each curve could simply have depicted testing protocol. The tester could quite literally have compiled any curve it wanted. But even worse, there's a logical flaw so breathtaking, it's impossible to believe it could have been overlooked by all lockdown-imposing world governments. Of the thousands of national, state, and local political and media actors cheering on the lockdowns, at least one must have noticed that while the curve may have been flatter in Wuhan, the, di- the disease still went away in all of China. So that supposed flatter curve in Wuhan had zero net benefit. The residents there suffered through the pain of lockdown. Neighboring regions did not, but they all ended up at the same point. Now, China's not reported any COVID cases in nearly four months. Prior to that, its cases were flatlined for 15 months since March 2020. So China's disease curve would be comedic if the rest of the world had not given up democracy and precious constitutional rights to fight the virus. And she backs this up with a chart of active cases in China. Now contrast this with the rest of the world, particularly the countries that tried hardest to replicate the Chinese example. We're talking places like Peru, Israel, Australia, Singapore, New Zealand, and Canada. All of them have reported multiple waves of covid despite all the pain of lockdown. Even mass vaccination has not stopped waves of cases. China is the only country with a perfectly flat curve, and it did that with a single city lockdown, despite reporting the presence of the virus in many other regions. Magic.
Now, Stacey Rudin says world governments certainly know about this. They do not trust the communist dictator. If they really believed the disease was serious and China underreported cases, they would not be firing doctors and nurses who refused the vaccine after working safely with COVID patients for 18 months. Rather, they know that the rules have no effect. The disease curves rise and fall, rise and fall. It would be absurd, it would be absurd rather and perverse to conclude that the rules work sometimes and fail at others. I'm going to come back to this in a few moments. And, of course, if uh, you want to check out this article for yourself, it's in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to send a quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. This is a great way for you to get stocked up on food storage with ReadyWise emergency food supplies. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, if you don't have your, your or if you, if you have a basic food storage program, there's always gaps you can fill in. So, I mean, you don't have to just go out there and buy one huge package and be done with it. Hopefully you're rotating foods through and, you know, there, there are so many different things that they offer. There's the prepper pack, the hunting bucket. I really thought the uh, seven-day emergency dry bag, which you can pick up for $109.99, I thought that was a really smart idea. We're talking 60 servings, and we're talking 25-year shelf life. Oh, and there's one other little aspect here that you should probably know about. If you order through lifesavingfood.com, use my last name, Hyde, as your code at checkout, you get a 25% discount. That's a really generous and deep discount being offered by Kendall, who's the owner of Life Saving Food. Please click on the link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com and consider getting a little store of food put aside or building up your existing store just in case things ever get, you know, weird. Not that that could ever happen. Back to Stacy Rudin's article for the Brownstone Institute. First comply, then we'll grant you some rights. She talks about how the world leaders looked at China and their lockdown of the Wuhan region, a single city lockdown, actually, and and somehow it made the virus uh, just stop working at other places. She says it's 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 absurd to think that the rules would work sometimes and then fail at other times. Yet these world leaders keep imposing rules. The population complies, conditioned to an illusion of control, a superstitious belief that because we did something, it must have had an effect. But Stacey Rudin says facts are facts, even if even the vaccines have not stopped the virus because there are breakthrough infections. And desiring to be good people, everyone stays unthinkingly on the track that started with Wuhan's lockdown. I noticed the uh, Epic Times reported over the weekend a completely 100% fully vaccinated cruise, uh, you know, a cruise ship full of people, everybody 100% vaccinated, had an outbreak of COVID. Now, I'm not telling you, therefore, you know, everything you've been told is wrong, but doesn't that at least raise some questions? 
The vaccine will protect you. And in fact, we're going to do this so everybody who's on this ship will have been 100% vaccinated. This should be the safest cruise ever up until an outbreak, a breakthrough, you know, infection occurs. And there you are. Something's a little bit off here. Again, to, to refer to, to Stacy's uh, terminology. Now, Stacy Rudin says they're trying to save Grandma, but Grandma's fate is sealed. What is actually happening is they're paving the way to routine, universal, mandatory vaccination. The political establishment intends to make the unvaccinated second-class citizens, to dehumanize them and deny them basic rights many generations have taken for granted. This conditions the population to movement restrictions based on behavior. Compliance gets you rights, like a dog earning treats. Now, in this system, which is steadily getting underway in country after country, a person who weighs 350 pounds is completely sedentary and eats a steady stream of Big Macs is considered healthy and accepted in society. The decisive factor is obedience. He dutifully takes all of the boosters. By contrast, a world-class athlete such as uh, Novak Djokovic cannot play tennis at the Australian Open. He is deemed an infection risk because he insists on maintaining his body using Eastern-style health practices. By the way, the same ones that made him into the greatest tennis player of all time. The establishment would rather he copy the Big Mac devotee described above because it earns them, not him, more profits. She says the political establishment is so devoted to this cause that it's hard to see how we can extricate ourselves. Accepting the first lockdown was the decisive point. We sacrificed our rights due to fear, and nearly two years later, we still don't have them back. It was as obvious then as it is now. Power is never seized and then voluntarily returned. Australia now has quarantine camps. Unvaccinated Canadians cannot use mass transit. Austrians who refuse the jab cannot leave their homes. It bears repeating. World governments are holding law-abiding adults in house arrest for refusing to take an injection. This is not a drill. Combine this real-life dystopia with the twisted logic used to launch the lockdowns, and it's hard to ignore the sinking feeling that lockdown was preconceived or is a, a preconceived pathway to where we are now, staring down the barrel at permanent, regular, mandatory adult vaccination. Your immune system is now a subscription service, and of course the corresponding movement, passports. Stacy Rudin asks, why do they want to inject us? so badly. Certainly not for our own good. They act in their own self-interest under the cover of fake, grandma-saving goodwill. They are stealing from us, from you. And she asks, how much more will you let them take? I'll grant you, that's enough right there to make some people feel pretty uncomfortable. But maybe we need to be uncomfortable, or at least uncomfortable enough to recognize at some point, you've got the choice. Do I go along with this or not? I know what my answer is. Have you thought through yours? I'm going to shift gears here. Politicians love to pretend that they are the answer to every problem we face. But how well does government welfare stack up when compared to private charity? Well, it's really no contest. Charity constitutes a robust alternative to government welfare, one that's far more ethical and far more effective, says Joel Lim, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. 
He says it's that time of year again when Americans consume more than ever, but also the time when Americans give more than ever. Indeed, America's generosity as a whole is actually quite extensive, with Americans giving $471 billion in 2020. That's an all-time high. That's more than what the vast majority of countries bring in for tax revenue. 80% of this is from individuals, according to Giving USA. Joel Lim says, Americans in general are incredibly generous, with 25% of Americans volunteering every year. You convert that to a dollar value, that's roughly $179 billion worth of work. And most of this charity comes from the rich, with 93% of households that make over $162,501 donating to charity, and 91% of households that make over $125,001 donating to charity. Since the government started the war on poverty 56 years ago, it has spent $27 trillion on this effort, and yet it was only the beginning seven years when poverty rates went down. Why? Well, one likely explanation is that welfare has taught people not to work, as governmental welfare dependency statistics have shown. Indeed, 93% of welfare recipients rely on welfare for more than two years. Charity, on the other hand, is not guaranteed, so it encourages people to take responsibility and become self-sufficient. Another problem with government welfare is the bureaucracy. For example, studies found that 70% of the money spent on budgeting for government assistance gets spent upholding the bureaucracies, with only 30% actually going to the poor. Private charities, on the other hand, give over 70% of their proceeds to the poor. And there are a ton of really good examples like this, like Feeding America, which can turn $1 into a shocking 12 pounds of food for the poor or 10 large meals. In fact, raising half as much money from voluntary private charity instead of forced taxation is estimated to produce the same impact as the government, if not more. Americans are a generous people, and we will step up and provide for the poor, especially if taxation is lowered through sensible cuts in welfare. Studies have found that decreasing government funding increases the number of donors, which makes sense because a decrease in public spending means people have more money to spend themselves. Joel Lim says a huge welfare state is not a practical solution for America and its one-size-fits-all approach simply isn't working. The effects of the interventionist welfare state have been disastrous to taxpayers, communities, liberty, and the poor. Now, he cites another of a, 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 a group of other studies that seem to bear this out. But in every case, it was clear that private charity outperforms government welfare, provides a robust alternative, as Joel Lim puts it, one that's far more ethical and far more effective. I'm not sure exactly how we get control of that welfare back into the hands of our communities, our churches, individuals. But when the day comes that enough people are, are willing to step up, switch their conscience back on, and actually act like they are their brother's keeper, that's going to be a good day for everybody involved, especially for the needy. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, I'm feeling kind of reflective today, and I'm sorry because you get to come along for the ride, but uh, I spend a lot of time this weekend thinking about uh, life. And one of the things that I'm, I'm beginning to realize is that when each one of us reaches the end of what's hopefully a long, productive life, it's very doubtful that we're going to spend much time regretting the times we failed to uh, drive a nice enough car. We failed to argue, you know, with the right people, to own, you know, the right uh, ideological opponents. In fact, truth be told, I think more likely than not, any regrets we may feel at the end of our lives will likely be for opportunities that we missed to be kind to the people around us. I think there's truth in this. There's times still that I remember, you know, that uh, I could have extended a kindness or I should have extended a kindness, and I chose not to for whatever reason. And at the time, I was justified. I'm in a hurry. I need to do this. And my kids are, you know, they're in the way here. And Hmm. That's the kind of stuff that I do. I'll, I'll feel a pang of regret when I think I wish I'd have handled that differently. And it almost always comes down to, I wish I had been kinder. Well, Barry Brownstein has a magnificent essay on the power of kindness. And I'm going to share this with you and, and say I, this may actually shift your definition of how you define personal success. Barry Brownstein writes, Recently my wife learned that 103 students enrolled at her university are wards of the state. They have no parents or home. And he says, as she shared her story, she choked up and so did I. He says, life is hard. And even for those who are materially comfortable, there are problematic circumstances and challenges to overcome. No one is spared the pain of losing loved ones. As we go about our day, we encounter strangers Some of those strangers would benefit by our kindness, perhaps just a smile or a kind word. Can we not all increase our kindness quotient? Barry Brownstein writes about acclaimed writer George Saunders, who reflected that what he he regrets most in his life are failures of kindness. In a convocation speech delivered at Syracuse University, Saunders identifies three mindsets that sets rather that stop us from being kinder. He calls them built-in confusions. So he says, each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions that are probably somehow Darwinian. These are, number one, we're central to the universe. That is, our personal story is the main and most interesting story, the only story, really. Number two, we're separate from the universe. There's us and then out there all that other junk, dogs and swing sets in the state of Nebraska and low-hanging clouds and, you know, other people. (laughs) I love that. And number three, we're permanent. Death is real. Okay, sure, for you, but not for me. Now, Barry Brownstein says, here's the curious thing about these mindsets. We don't really believe them, but we act as if they're true. Saunders puts it like this. We don't really believe these things. Intellectually, we know better, but we believe them viscerally and live by them, and they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others. Even though what we really want in our hearts is to be less selfish, more aware of what's actually happening in the present moment, more open and more loving. Saunders asks, how might we become more loving, more open, less selfish, more present, less delusional? Well, Saunders advises us to be good 
and proactive and even somewhat desperate patient on our own behalf. Be a good, proactive, and even somewhat desperate patient on our own behalf and seek out the most efficacious anti-selfishness medicines energetically for the rest of our life. Now, Barry Brownstein here points out, Saunders isn't advising against personal ambition, but he asks us to err in the direction of kindness. How might we do that? Saunders advises, avoid the things that would reduce you and make you trivial. Instead, turn toward the luminous part of yourself. Luminous part? Barry says Saunders here is speaking of the part of us that exists beyond personality. He adds, your soul, if you will, is as bright and shining as any that has ever been. Bright as Shakespeare's, bright as Gandhi's, bright as Mother Teresa's. So the process of becoming kinder or being kinder is a process of subtraction. Clear away everything that keeps you separate from this secret luminous place. Believe it exists. Come to know it better. Nurture it. Share its fruits tirelessly. We think we are separate from the universe and live our lives through our personal story of me. But these confusions keep us from our luminous place and block the flow of kindness. Barry Brownstein says, life is a contact sport. We take our lumps and bumps. From the lens of separation, we ask, why is this happening? Why did they do this to me? From the soul lens, we see these lumps and bumps very differently. In the smallest everyday encounters, we can remember and strengthen our true nature. He says, I had a question as I was setting up my health care flexible spending account. Erin, the service representative at the call center, was unable to answer my question, so she faked it. She gave me an answer that was clearly wrong. Now, perhaps she was new to the job. In any case, her work was a hard battle. Now, he says, there have been similar situations in which my irritation may have been heard in my voice. That day, I made a different choice. With sincere empathy, I said, Aaron, it must be difficult to ha- having to answer questions about many plans with many rules. The stress went out of her voice as we started fresh and solved the issue. What a great example. And he says, I'm sure you can share your own example of a time where you chose kindness instead of taking things personally. Every day presents opportunities to practice kindness as we let go of our personal sense of importance. Perhaps you're standing in the supermarket, very much lost in the concerns of your day, standing in the checkout line, complaining thoughts arise as you observe how slowly the cashier is moving. You choose not to grab hold of those thoughts. Instead, you act contrary to your personal sense of importance. You smile at the cashier and sincerely ask her how her day has been. And for a moment, her burden seems to lift as she shares how busy the lines have been. In that moment, you and the cashier share your common humanity. The day's a bit brighter for both of you. Through brief encounters, we may discover we're not really separate at all. We impact the arc of the day of others as they impact ours. Marcus Aurelius advised in his meditations, quote, Keep reminding yourself of the way things are connected, of their relatedness. All things are implicated in one another and in sympathy with each other. This event is the consequence of some other one. Things push and pull on each other and breathe together and are one. Barry Brownstein says, perhaps today you didn't climb as high on the ladder of success as you'd planned. Saunders would say, so what? Being kind is job one. Here's a quote from Saunders. Succeeding, whatever that might mean to you, is hard. 
and the need to do so constantly renews itself. Success is like a mountain that keeps growing ahead of you as you hike it. And there's the very real danger that succeeding will take up your whole life while the big questions go untended. End quote. So the point here is, there's no better time to begin to be kinder than this moment. Now is the only time to make a different choice. The words of Marcus Aurelius ring true. Each of us lives only now, this brief instant. The rest has been lived already or is impossible to see. And Barry Brownstein says when we stop being self-centered, we might discover, as Aurelius puts it, how few things you have to do to live a satisfying and reverent life. So I've shared this before for the sake of those hearing it for the first time. I still think this is one of the the coolest examples of how you could put that into motion today. Just on the off chance. Let's say say that you find yourself in a convenience store, the gas station, whatever, and you go to the checkout and particularly pay attention. If it's busy, if the cashier is really being worked hard, when you get to the checkout stand there, look around you and look, look for a candy bar. Look at a couple of them real quick and say, oh, man, oh, I just I can't decide. And then ask the cashier, what's your favorite? And whatever they tell you their favorite is, purchase one of those bars. And when the purchase is done, hand it to them and say, this is for you. You're doing a great job. Think about how you would feel if someone extended a little kindness like that to you. Does that not sound like just a, a great way to lift somebody's spirits? It's To me, it's, it's as brilliant as it is simple and unexpected. But it's the little building blocks like this that, uh, that make us into better people. And at the same time, it's not really about, uh, hey, look how much better I am walking out of here. You're better because... You realize you not only, you know, didn't make this person's life harder, but you actually did some small, meaningful thing that improved their life. Like like Barry Brownstein says in this essay, both lives are brightened when we make that kindness a priority. All right. Check out the show notes. There's a link to this wonderful article in there. They're at the BrianHydeShow.com. You'll find a lot of other good reading there as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Off we go into the month of December. You know, even this month seems to be going pretty fast too, but uh, hey, hang on. The ride is getting exciting, if a little bit bumpy. And we've got some great things to cover in today's show. I want to start by thanking my sponsors, the folks who help make this possible, and uh, they. I really hope that you'll take the time to click on the links I provide in the show notes. Say hello to great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, also HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, and uh, GovernYourIncome.com. 
So where to begin this hour? Well, I don't want to sound like I'm recruiting for some kind of multi-level marketing scheme, but I do want to ask, what gives you your greatest sense of purpose? And I would gather that a lot of folks really don't sit down. They're just caught up in the busyness of life. They're not dumb or anything. They just, they don't really stop and think about this kind of thing. And something that I've been slow to realize, but uh, my my friendship with, uh, with I'm going to call him a guru, but he's really just, he's a really bright guy, is Kurt Mercadante, who points out that, you know, purpose in life and fulfillment in life is about a lot more than just staying busy. I've got a great article here from Jonathan Colvin that explains purpose comes down to a day-to-day opportunity to write a better chapter for your life story. Listen to how he explains this. He says, 20 years ago in the summer, I traveled to Guatemala with my Nazarene church to build church structures in some remote areas of the country. He says, we would stay in small towns at the local hotels, if you could call them that. Early one morning, he says, I was up early, and I went for a walk as the sun was coming up. Now, the neighborhood was poor, with small homes, many in disrepair, with few amenities, if any at all. There was water and sewer, but the area was not well maintained. There was almost no one up at the time in that small town, but as I walked, I came upon an elderly man tending to some weeds growing between the narrow sidewalk and the curb of the street. I guessed that he was probably late 70s or 80s. He was short, as most Guatemalans are, probably five feet, three inches tall, slight of build. And what struck me was the way he was dressed. He wore a long-sleeved shirt, the button-up kind with cuffs and a collar, pants of the same off-white or tan color, boots almost knee-high with his trousers tucked in them. He had on a leather apron that started at his chest and ran almost to his knees and a straw wide-brimmed hat. Gloves were on his hands. My recollection is that he had two tools with him, a hoe which he was using, and a rake nearby. Now, he says the man's leather apron reminded me of a farrier's or blacksmith's apron. I assumed that he had done something else for a living but could no longer meet the physical requirements of that job in his prior life. He says what impressed me most was this man, in spite of his age, prepared himself for the work that day as if it were his assigned job fully outfitted with his apparel, as he had done probably every day of his working life. He had a purpose in life, albeit different from what it once was, but just as important to him. His wife probably worked the same way, making sure the space was tidy, something she had probably done for years. Jonathan Colvin says, I received a call from a friend yesterday, and we set an appointment to meet for lunch. He expressed to me that he wanted to see if I had any ideas for him as to what he would do with the rest of his life. He'd been a policeman for 35 years, and he worked after he retired in security, but now he's unemployed. He's married to a great wife, but he's now like a fish in a tree, his mind flopping about, anxious, bored, wondering how will it all end. He talked about joining a shooting club and maybe getting involved in politics in his area of the city. This is all good. But Jonathan Colvin says, I believe that he needs a defined purpose in life, not just activities to take up time. And there is the difference. As we get older and retire from our active jobs, money becomes less important. But the quantity of time we have on our hands increases as the days do not get any shorter. The process of defining purpose starts with attitude. 
We sometimes desire to do important and recognizable things, but that definition may not coincide with the resolving issues of boredom and anxiety. And I love his answer here. The key to solving this problem is to determine what gives you peace. Getting to that place without knowing what God does in your life every day may be difficult. Now, whether you believe in God or not, for God, it is immaterial. God will have the ultimate say. Peace comes only when, at any age, the realization is that God has a plan for you. The idea that we have the Internet and we have all the knowledge and all we need to do is apply it is false. And he says the inner peace we seek does not come from knowledge. It comes from knowing our Creator and abiding in His will. Prayer is a tool to seek His wisdom, but He also provided the Holy Spirit to guide our activities. The path to inner peace is many many times found not by forcing activities, but being aware of the surroundings and opportunities afforded us by God. Now, these opportunities can be easily missed due to the farsighted nature of our lives. The opportunities are right in front of us, but they sometimes appear as problems without a solution. The weeds in our lives may truly be blessings. Jonathan Colvin says, 25 years ago, before cell phones were everywhere, we moved across town and I had to change telephone numbers for my business. I realized that the main number I chose was one number off from the number for others picking up their phone messages from the phone company. To compound that, I had a toll-free number, an 800, and I would get a lot of wrong number calls on that as well. I was working from home then, and he says the phone was ringing constantly. Iris, our housekeeper, was there, a great Christian lady, and she commented about all the calls. I told her about all the number, all the wrong number calls, and she said, maybe God is sending you a message. The next day, I started Wrong Number Ministries, asking wrong number callers if I could pray for them. And for the next 15 years or so, I probably prayed with several, several thousand strangers. I spoke with many of them for a half hour or more. I was really glad for those weeds that grew in my office. My inner peace derived from the wrong number calls provided by God is everlasting. What a lesson to learn and peace to be given to me by strangers. I only hope that I passed along the peace given to me back to them. So he says, thinking about the elderly man in Guatemala tending his weeds, I saw a man who had prepared himself for the weeds of the day, using his experience to clothe himself with his work attire as he had probably done for decades before. He defined the area he was to work in that day, having started at the far end of the space, working toward home at a steady and sure pace, equipped with the tools he was familiar with that would fit the job at hand. He did not seem anxious or bored, but rather at peace with the weeds that had been placed at his hand. I believe he was grateful that God had placed those weeds there. On that day, he seemed to have a purpose, but I believe he had a purpose in life every day. He and his wife looked as though they were poor in material things, but rich in life with peace and purpose. Oh, what a great place to be in our later years. Jonathan Colvin says, I'm going to tell my friend this story. I'll pray with him that he finds this inner peace, whether it's some new activity that he finds or uh, if it's in that or if it's in the daily routines of his life. And he says, I too want to start at the far end today, clothe myself with the attire that will be required for the job at hand, equip myself with the tools provided by God for life and work toward home with a purpose that God gives me. We cannot write a new beginning, but starting today, we can write a new ending. 
That's powerful. I mean, that is really, really good stuff. And maybe this is just standing out to me, and maybe I'm finding it particularly relevant because I have a son right now who is uh, between jobs. He's a hard worker. He's got a great work ethic. But he's trying to figure out, what do I want to do? And I keep telling him, find something that gives you a sense of purpose. And I don't care what that is. You could be sweeping the street for whatever, you know. But if you're doing it and you have that sense of purpose, particularly, this this is the thing that probably has shifted most in my life. And, and, and everything got better at this point. I came to the realization, and this is just for me. You don't have to do this. I came to the realization that uh, my employer really is my creator. And sometimes my assignment uh, changes. <clears throat> sometimes it's, it's a change I can see coming, and sometimes it comes out of the blue. But ultimately, everything that I do, I do with, with the idea that I'm actually working for God and trying to do these things in a way that, that in, some, in some way either shows my gratitude for what I've been blessed with, whether it's my time or, or my talents or, or my passions, and in some way that will help show him how much I appreciate that and, and maybe serve his purposes. When you do this, suddenly the fear of losing your job doesn't even register. Because you know there will always be another assignment. And it's a job that will continue till my very last day. So, that's how I find purpose. Hope you do too. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is, uh, this is a message that should be of interest to anybody within the state of Utah looking to secure a mortgage. So let's say you've moved to the Intermountain West, you've found a home that you want to buy, and now you're trying to figure out, what do I do? Where do I get the, where do I get the money for it? You talk to Heather Turner at the Patriot uh, Patriot Home Mortgage. That's what you do, and you talk to her because right now time is of the essence. It's a super competitive market. People are just waiting to snap up any home that comes on the market, so you've got to have your financing in order. And Heather has the experience. She has the stability. She has the clout to take care of you and get you that loan quickly without delay. VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, the masks are back, apparently, in a lot of countries around the world. And I, I don't have to tell you, this has been a big source of contention with very little to show in way of effective protection. David McGrogan actually spells out the real problem with masks, and it comes down to what do we lose when government decides what's morally right and then forces that decision on all of us? So David McGrogan says, Here in Britain, masks are back. Almost all COVID restrictions, including the requirement to wear masks in any setting, were lifted back in July. And it felt like we were on a slow but sure return to blissful normality. 
But Omicron has changed that, and now we're expected to wear masks again in shops and on public transport, but not hospitality settings, interestingly, for the next three weeks. So he says to readers elsewhere in the world who've had many places, uh, who have in many places been forced to mask up unrelentingly for a year and a half, it may sound churlish to complain, but if there's anything more dispiriting than a freedom curtailed, it is a freedom returned and then snatched away. The message sent is bleak. No, this isn't over. No, it might never be over. Yes, the state is going to retain its capacity to do this sort of thing forever. So get used to it. Now, he says arguments over the legitimacy of government mask mandates are frustrating because they tend to tangle up both normative and empirical assertions. Those in favor of mask wearing tend to argue that masks work, an empirical statement. And since they do, it is legitimate for the government to make it unlawful not to wear one. That's a normative position. From the other corner, the repost is often that masks don't work and said that since they don't, the government has no business in mandating them. This all excludes the middle. Masks may work very well, or may very well work, rather, or they may not. But that's really immaterial to the question of whether or not wearing them should be a legal requirement. He's right, by the way. There are plenty of things that might plausibly work to stop people from getting sick and dying. The government could ban all sales of milkshakes, marshmallows, and ice cream tomorrow, for instance, and hence cut down on obesity and heart disease. But it doesn't follow that it should. The English political philosopher Michael Oakeshott helps us frame the argument more clearly. For Oakeshott, there were, at work in a modern society, two moral systems that can be referred to as the morality of the individual and anti-individual. The distinction between these two understandings really hinges on where the capacity to exercise moral choice is located. That's, in other words, the, the, the ability to decide what is right or wrong. In the individual moral system, it is for individual people to make choices as they go about their daily lives, in reference, of course, to their surrounding cultural and social mores and expectations. Anti-individual morality, on the other hand, puts moral choice in the hands of a clerisy of experts who decide for themselves what is right and wrong and then impose their decision on the masses beneath them. Mask mandates, he says, are the perfect illustration of the dichotomy between these two moral systems. For Okashat's individual morality, it's up to every individual to decide whether wearing a mask is right or wrong. In an anti-individual moral system, on the other hand, it's not for individuals to decide, but for a small cadre of experts who know what's right and are therefore sure that it's legitimate to impose their decision on everybody. For Okashat, Anti-individual morality was a moral enormity. It deprived individual people of their capacity to make authentic moral choices of their own. And in doing so, deprived them of something that ought to be right at the core of human dignity. If one is acting only in accordance with what one has been told is right, one is not really a moral agent at all, but a mere role performer, abiding by strictures simply because they're required. General moral agency can only be contingent on choice. It's only when one has the option to decide for oneself what is right or wrong and act accordingly that one can be said to have an authentic morality of one's own. That's brilliant. Now he says there are all kinds of problems with mask mandates, but this seems to be the this seems to me to be the most serious of all. 
it reduces us to what can only be described as amorality. We act a certain way just because we've been told that it's right and for no other reason than that. This can only serve to enervate and infantilize us and to cause our moral muscles to atrophy. We increasingly turn not to our own moral compasses, but come to behave as though these moral compasses don't exist at all, other than in the hearts of minds and minds of those who rule us. As a consequence, we come to rely unreflectingly on the decisions of our rulers, exercised purportedly on our behalf, a kind of moral outsourcing that will in the long run cause us to lose our willingness or capacity to make moral choices in the first place. Whether masks work or don't work in stopping the spread is thus really beside the point. Nor is it appropriate to, to question, is, is it the appropriate question to ask whether one should or should not wear one? David McGrogan says it seems to me that either position is legitimate, and I certainly cast no aspersions toward those who choose to mask up. But he says the real question we ought to be asking is what do we lose when a government decides on our behalf what is morally right and then forces that decision on us all? I don't know if you if 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 that sets, you know, lights off in your brain like it did mine, but I think he's right. And I go back, you know, this this can be taken outside of the context of just masks. I look at the war on drugs and I think, you know, I want to live in a society that that rejects drugs as the the answer to life's problems. You know, whether you know, this this is not to say that, you know, pharmaceutically you you shouldn't have access to your heart medication. But when people are altering their reality to cope or to escape from life, I think it's pretty safe to say that that can become unhealthy quickly. So I would like to live in a society that is drug-free in the sense that people aren't trying to medicate their way out of reality. But I want to live in a society where people choose to live without uh, medicating themselves away from reality because they understand that it is a better, healthier approach to life, a more productive approach to life. Not because, well, because we'll throw you in jail and take away everything that's dear to you if you choose to do this. And I know there are people who strongly disagree with it. Oh, Brian, haven't you seen the damage that drugs have done? I have. I've seen it as as clearly as anybody can see it. But I still believe that if you want to live in a virtuous society... It's not something that's going to come about because you had a big enough police force and enough courts and enough laws that everybody had to be virtuous or else. That kind of defeats the point of virtue. Virtue, in order to be authentic, has to be freely chosen, which means you have to be free to make the choice that uh, maybe you wouldn't be virtuous. Of course, there may be consequences that come along with that. But if you want to be around truly virtuous people, you've got to be around people who have chosen to be good. That's where real strength is. In fact, we're going to talk about choices when we come back and choices that were made for us. Got a great piece from Eric Peters. We'll share that with you right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, I would invite you, please visit my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you find uh, if you find the articles and the commentaries and guests that I have on the show interesting, that's where you will find links to access them and to uh, you know take it further. That's where you can do your own homework and you know follow them as far down the rabbit hole as you would like. Just uh, hit the subscribe button. I will email a copy of my show notes to you every day that I do this program. I just love that technology makes this possible. And, of course, if you don't have time to sit and listen, you know, then this is a great way for you to, you know, follow up on these these topics on your own. You know, having a choice means something more than just being able to select between two undesirable alternatives from which you're allowed to choose. I've talked about this at length with elections, and I remember as far back as, like, the 2016 election, you know, where you have this choice, Hillary or Trump. And for a lot of people, myself included, I was like, you're not offering me a great choice. Well, you can either be shot in the head or you can be shot in the stomach. But you have to choose one. No, choice means you're actually allowed to select something more. And we're seeing this play out in terms of the uh, the vaccinations and other things. In fact, there's a great article here from Eric Peters from epautos.com on choices that are made for us. And it's surprising how many aspects of our life this this encompasses. Eric says, when you're not free to choose, you take what you get. More precisely, you get what those who've taken away your choices decide you'll have. No more and a lot less. And he says, this taking away of choices does more than diminish our options. It diminishes our humanity. And one of the easiest ways to see this, literally, is to have a look at a group of people wearing the same uniform. It makes them all look the same. The literal meaning of uniform. One form. And he says it's not accidental that uniforms are common in context where the individual's choices are reduced to nil, as in the military. As in tyrannies, where the old school uniform was the dreary gray or black suit worn by the dear leader and by everyone else too. Or in modern tyrannies, the chin diaper, which serves the same essential purpose as a uniform which is to establish the look of universality and just as important to make it clear that that, that choice is no longer yours to make. Americans used to have all kinds of choices, especially when it came to cars, which was a visual affirmation of the choices they were free to make generally. Eric says there were very basic cars and there were very fancy cars and with a spectrum of prices that made it possible for practically anyone to buy a car that suited their means and their preferences. You could buy something not far removed from a lawnmower. Old Volkswagen Beetles had air-cooled engines, not much different from the air-cooled engines that powered what you used to cut your grass with. The old Beetle didn't have air conditioning, and it wasn't very speedy, but it was very different by dint of being very affordable. Almost anyone could afford to buy it. Or you could buy something more evolved, which suited your needs and budget better. Practically anything you want was available, and you were free to choose it because the car companies were free to build it and offer it if they thought there were probably enough people interested in buying it. These expressed preferences determining what was available. This was called the free market, and it existed more or less from the dawn of the automotive age at the beginning of the last century to nearly the end of it. But it doesn't exist any longer, which accounts for the uniformity of current cars. 
The market has decided that all cars must look and actually be largely the same cars. He says modern cars are as functionally homogenous as they are aesthetically homogenous. But that choice has been made for us by the government, which over a period of about 50 years gradually acquired the power to effectively winnow down the choices we're allowed to make to size, color, and the number of doors. Now, he says, to be precise, it is the government bureaucracy that has winnowed down the choices available to us, to those choices, which is not unlike the choice to receive the jab or lose your job. And this is noteworthy because we're told we live in a democracy, which is to say a place where the people have the right to make choices and the government is bound to defer to them. But Eric Peters says there's nothing democratic about the federal regulatory apparat, which is just a few people making choices for all the people who have few choices once those choices are imposed upon them. Agencies such as the Department of Transportation issue uniform regulations that all car makers must abide by irrespective of the express choices of the people buying cars, whose choices are never allowed to be made in the first place by dint of the regulations that preclude them. So you can't buy a new car like the old Beetle, something very basic and thus very affordable, because the few who are the unelected regulatory apparat have decreed such cars may not be built. The interesting thing about that being no law specifying such a prohibition was ever passed by the people in this democracy. Rather, the regulatory bureaucracy, which is never obliged to submit itself to the choice of the people, issues regulations that serve the same purpose as a law, without the bother of having to pass a law. The people be damned, with apologies to the phraseology of William Henry Vanderbilt, who actually meant a very different thing, the opposite thing, in fact, of today's meaning. It works very much the way things do in it, things work in an army, where soldiers wear the same uniform and eat the same food and do the same things without the diff- with the difference being that they're under no illusions about having much choice. And they signed up for it. They made the choice to be uniform. Now, for us, the facade of choice remains. When it comes to the cars we're allowed to buy and which car companies, which the car companies are allowed to build, we can still choose to buy a Toyota or a Chevy or a BMW, and they still let us pick the size and color, also the number of doors, even though that choice is winnowing, a function of the same regulatory pressure that's winnowing choices generally. Now, you may have noticed that there's not much choice left in the way of sedans, for instance, and of cars generally. Only a few car companies still sell cars at, at at all, rather. And there's just a few sedans, which is a form of car, still available. Superficially, he says, it may appear that people prefer crossovers, that homogenized form of vehicle that's becoming the only form of vehicle we're allowed to buy, because they're more versatile and thus more practical than sedans and cars generally, which is true, but only superficially. Why are sedans and cars generally less versatile and practical? It's because the choices, because of the choices, made by the regulatory apparat that place a maximum priority on gas mileage rather than physical size. That's what's led to smaller sedans with smaller trunks that are much less versatile and practical than crossovers, which are shaped homogeneously so as to maximize the amount of interior space available inside the box. The sedan shape can only be made more spacious by making it longer, 
And that means bigger and heavier, which means more engine, which means lower gas mileage, which the apparat makes more expensive via fines for noncompliance with the ever-uniform standards it imposes. So now the new standard that all vehicles be electrified via the imposition of regulations that winnow the choices available to build them otherwise, and thus, for us to have the choice to buy something else, will leave us with very little choice to buy anything that isn't an electric electric crossover. The universal transportation appliance, small, medium, or large. But he says, hey, at least we'll be allowed, probably still be allowed to choose the color. I know, some people may think, you guys are just complaining a lot here. eh? Why are you complaining about it? But I think the, the telling line there is, How did our choices become so artificially limited when it was not the people? It was not the public that was clamoring for these kind of things. It was, you know, some political apparatus or it was some political uh, lobbying group that pushed for these things. And I mean, you may say, well, I agree with them, though. I want I want my cars to be safe. I want people to to know, you know, that they they're driving a safe car. That's fine. But when did it become a government matter for those things? And in a free market, why wouldn't people, you know, go where the market is? If people want affordable cars like a Volkswagen Beetle or the equivalent of a Volkswagen Beetle in our time, don't you think the market would meet that? I would think so, but, you know, hey, I'm just I'm just a guy who blah, blah, blah for a living. And the sad thing, as we've seen before, is once those choices are taken from us, once someone above us presumes to make that choice for us, it's really unlikely that that choice is going to be returned. And some people are comfortable with that, you know, in the sense that, hey, thinking is hard and making decisions is hard. And I don't want there's too much responsibility involved. Can't somebody else do it? Oh, yeah. But the problem is the people who are most eager to do it almost invariably turn out to be power seekers and opportunists. And they'll gladly take, you know, they'll take control and make all those decisions for you. All you have to do is give up and let them make them for you and run your life. I think we were born to do something more than that. I think individually, each of us has to be able to make these choices for ourselves. At least that's how it should be. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got to warn you, I'm, I'm going to probably step on a few people's toes with the, the next thing I share here. But one of the reasons I love Paul Rosenberg's commentaries, one of the reasons I always have found them to be a worthwhile read, is that there are very few commentators out there who can bring you face-to-face with authentic insight. I mean, with things that like, whoa, I haven't thought of that before. But they can do it in a way that doesn't leave you feeling attacked. I mean, I've I've seen the whole gamut. I've actually, I feel like I've lived the whole gamut of from spittle-flinger to rational voice. But I came across this. This is an older essay from Paul. This is from uh, 2014. 
And the title is, Does the Land of the Free Have Any Rational Meaning? Now, of course, when you hear Land of the Free, you know, some people are going to be like, you're going to attack the things that I consider patriotic. And some people may very well feel attacked. But I think you should hear what Paul Rosenberg has to say here. He says, I once knew a man who was a deacon in the Catholic Church. During certain ceremonies, his job was to raise his hand in a gesture of blessing over a church member and say some Latin words. Now, the problem was this guy had become a fairly serious atheist. So instead of the prescribed Latin blessing, he would say the Latin words for can't help you, can't hurt you. No one noticed, not even the priests. Paul Rosenberg says, I feel like I'm watching something similar. When I see the beginning of a sporting event and I hear thousands of people singing the land of the free as a benediction over themselves, they don't assimilate the words that their mouths are forming. They may as well be singing Latin. Now, he says, what I mean about not assimilating the words is this. People understand the words as a type of self-blessing or self-praise, but they never examine their actual meaning. The land of the free has become a holy dogma, an uncritically accepted truth. And to to critique those words is to reveal yourself as a heretic. So much for our progress from the Middle Ages. Reason has again become treason. But, he says, if reason makes us heretics, then let's at least be explicit heretics. Now, from here, he talks about the knee-jerk response that people will have. And if you're having one right now, let's work through it here. Paul Rosenberg says, rather than explaining what freedom is or isn't, I think we should start with the knee-jerk responses to disagreements with the American state's holy words. They do, after all, erupt instantly upon the appearance of heresy. So someone who points out, hey, are we really still the land of the free? And you will very likely hear someone say, well, if you don't like it here, go to North Korea. Which, translated into honest speech, means this. If we're not as bad as North Korea, we have freedom. Paul Rosenberg says, but that's simply a lie. Worse, it confuses people. There are degrees of evil, after all. The guy who was just shot in the stomach is far better off than the guy who was just shot in the head. But we would never say that such a person is uninjured. Likewise, someone who is half enslaved is better off than someone who's fully enslaved. But it's a lie to call that person free. So North Korea being worse does not mean that we are free. That's pure BS. Or someone may say, well, you're a blame America firster. And actually, there's a lot about America, he says, that I really like and even defend. For example, the people here still retain a gut feeling that they should be left alone. That's a big, important deal, even if they're confused about what it should mean. There's also an assumption of productivity and adaptation among the American people. And he says, and I like that a lot, too. I think the American people have a lot to offer. As for their rulers, I don't think much of them. But he says the two aren't even remotely the same thing. Listen to Americans complain about their government, and he says you'll see that most of them land on my side of that argument. The issue here, he says, is that I don't reflexively endorse U.S. military ventures. And that accusation, he says, is true. I don't like sending young people out to be wounded and killed, and I don't endorse the stirring up of wars. It's telling that American pro-military dogma excludes relevant opposition. To believe in it, you must blank out the most decorated Marine of his era, declaring that war is a racket. That would be uh, Major General Smedley Butler. 
or Dwight Eisenhower solemnly warning the American people about the military-industrial complex. So he says, if I'm blaming America first, then I'm joining Major General Smedley Butler and the Supreme Allied Commander of, of World War II. He says, sometimes people will tell him, you hate soldiers. And Paul says, well, that one is simply a lie. He says, I feel compassion for most soldiers. I'm sure there are a few monsters among them, but every large group of people has a few monsters in it. Moreover, war turns normal people into monsters. He says, I feel sorry for the kid who joins the army because he or she doesn't know what else to do sees no job prospects, wants the benefits, and knows that he or she will get rivers of praise for joining. At 18 years old, none of us is particularly good at perspective and choice-making. And over recent years, the odds have been fairly good that such a kid would be thrown into combat, a situation I'd wish upon almost no one. Paul Rosenberg says, I've said it before and I'll probably say it again, but no one is made better by killing people. Our children are not coming home better, they're coming home worse. Is that something to celebrate? And how come the emotionally wounded soldier is shuffled aside by the VA and flag worshippers? Maybe it's because he or she is no longer useful for spreading the dogma. Or someone will just accuse him when they hear you know, him talking about, are we really the land of the free? Well, you are! And he says, someone's always going to come up with a new response. And it happens automatically once you tear into one of their old defenses. Dogma in human beings leaps to defend itself. A ty- it's, it's a type of parasite that hijacks the human brain in order to reproduce itself. All dogma, ancient, medieval, mo- modern, eastern, whatever, abuses humans in this way. New responses are fairly easy to deal with if you can take a bit of time to examine them. The difficult moment is when the new response is delivered to an emotional crowd. Emotional effects, which bypass reason, can be countered quite well, but not within a two-second time span. So a clever defender of dogma can usually land the first blow. But that first blow, however, is more or less all the heretic hunter has. If that blow is parried or countered, dogma loses. That's why these people go for fast emotional kills and then scurry away from the subject. Now, as for the question, the land of the free? He says, ah, yes, the free. But to call U.S. citizens free puts a hell of a strain on the definition of free. Now, he points out here, liberty and freedom mean the same thing. Freedom comes to the English language from German and liberty from French. Both mean unbound or unrestrained. As I mentioned above, he says, freedom in the dogmatic context merely means oppression is somewhat worse somewhere else. And that's not much consolation once you stop to consider it. So what then can we say about productive Americans? Their money is taken from them by income taxes, sales taxes, property taxes, gas taxes, and probably a half dozen taxes on their utility bills. Together, these impositions remove half of their earnings, much of it before they hold it in their hands. How can we call such a person free? He says, I can tell you neither Sam Adams nor Thomas Jefferson would have called this situation freedom. Neither would most of the American founders. The dogmatics can emotionalize all they like, but they're not standing with the Americans of 1776. So here for the record, he says, is Thomas Jefferson's definition of freedom, which Paul Rosenberg says is very close to his own. Rightful liberty is unobstructed action according to our will within limits drawn around us by the equal rights of others. I do not add within the limits of the law because the law is often but the tyrant's will 
and always so when it violates the rights of the individual. End quote. So here's the Jefferson test. How free are Americans to act according to their own will, limited only by the equal rights of others? If we allow others to keep all their earnings, can we be free to keep ours? If we agree that others should be immune from speed traps, can we be immune too? If we agree that others should be free from mass surveillance, can we be free of it too? If we allow others to self-medicate peacefully, are we free to do so? Paul Rosenberg says we all know the answers to these questions. And we all know that freedom in America fails this test. The problem lies in having the guts to admit it. In the end, characterizing modern America as the land of the free has to be judged as a dirty lie. So, if we were to honestly sing the national anthem, we'd have to reference North Korea and sing the land of the less enslaved. Singing the, dog, the dogmatic way would propagate a lie, even if it was melodic and in unison. I'll grant you, that's a pretty bitter pill for people to swallow. I don't think Paul Rosenberg is wrong about this, but this, this is less to get you thinking about, oh man, can I sing the national anthem without telling a lie? And more to think about, do you consider the words that you speak? When you give the Pledge of Allegiance, are you really thinking about it, or are you just kind of robotically reciting it because everybody else is? We need to think a little more deeply, a little more independently, and definitely more clearly about what's going on around us. And this is just a great nudge in that direction. This is The Brian Hyde Show.